you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. The question we're answering today is sinless perfection? Sinless perfection? Well, let's read this text, 1 John 3, 4 through 9. It says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. You see, one of the most devastating things you'll find in the church is the extremes that many swing to when it comes to sin in their own lives. We either beat ourselves up thinking we can never deserve grace, or we give ourselves a pass thinking that we can do whatever we want, grace simply covers it. Both of those views are unbiblical. Neither view is consistent to what scripture clearly teaches. And unfortunately with inconsistent thinking, that leads to inconsistent living. Some give up too easily in fighting sin, while others struggle wondering if they're even saved with the sin they continually commit. This morning we're going to be talking specifically through this text. There's not a formal outline this time because there's just so much to unpack here and really one point we're driving at is are we able to be sinlessly perfect at the, on this side of eternity? We're going to let the text declare that to us whether we can or not. The first thing we see here in verse 4 is that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Sin is not simply a moral failure or a failure to do something. It is a complete disregard for the Word of God. Sin is an active transgression against God and His holy law. It's active rebellion. You see, what happens in many churches this, this morning and even across the land is that we've redefined sin to be simply a, oops, I made a mistake. That's not how scripture sees it. That's not how God sees it. You see, sin is not simply a mistake as if we just blew it. We usually know what we're doing is wrong, so it can no longer be just a simple mistake. Especially if we have the Holy Spirit. All of us that have trusted in Christ, have received the grace of God, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us that clearly points out that it was more than a simple mistake. We know what we're doing. Most of us, when we sin, we know how we've sinned. And yes, we can say, well, that was just a mistake. But many times, if you were to be honest with yourself, you knew you were going to sin, and you set yourself up for it. Believers who want to live with no restraint regarding sin in their lives are essentially saying they want to live lawless as the rest of the world. 
You see, Paul argues so strongly against this in the book of Romans. He says, God forbid that you live like this. That you just continually sin so grace abounds. Those that do not have the, king, the attitude of King David, who, by the way, sinned very grievously against God, did things that are atrocious, but his repentance is what we need to learn from way more than his sin. You see, David, who sinned grievously against God, also had the repentance that God required. Paul, in speaking of the importance of justification by faith, reminds us the view of David who understood this firsthand. In Romans 4, verses 5 through 8, here's what it says. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. You see, most of us, when we think of King David and we want to be reminded of how he sinned grievously against God, are also reminded that he's a man after God's own heart. But in reminding ourselves of the fact that he's a man after God's own heart, we should be reminded that David, as atrocious that sin was that he committed, in adultery, murder, cover-up, lying, deceit, when he repented, he fully took on all the consequences that came with it. He understood that he had sinned against God ultimately. And instead of using David as a pass for why we all sin, well, David sinned. How about we use David as the example of what to do after we've sinned that grievously against God? How about we strive to do what he does after God calls him out on it? You see, most people today love the examples of Scripture in the sense that people have failed. They don't like the example of how they were restored and how to live restored. And unfortunately, a lot of, there is a lot of comfort in knowing that we are all humans that fall. But there should be a reverence for God that when we are called for our sin, we get back up as the righteous man does. We don't stay in the mud, if you will. We are restored. Believers can and do commit sin, do we not? That's why we have the first John text that we already talked about, right? That we need to confess our sin, because we do commit sin. We commit sin, iniquity, lawlessness. It is when we fail to recognize the reality of what we are doing that we are in danger in this life. We are in danger in this life from troubles we would never anticipate because we allowed sin to take control. Your biggest problem is not those around you when you have struggles in life. Your biggest problem is the sin you're constantly struggling with inside. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but me practically speaking, when I notice something's off in my day, I have to pause and go, God, is there something I'm not doing right here today? Is there something that I have sinned against you in? 
because it seems like everything around me is going wrong. The conversations with people seems to be off. There's a misunderstanding here. There's something else going on. And it seems like there's no clear answer. And sometimes it can be that you're walking properly with God and there's just troubles that come into this life. I'm not saying that that cannot be the case. It can be. I mean, Job is a prime example of that. Unfortunately, all of us like to think and claim that we live as upright as he does, which I don't think that's always the case. I mean, it amazes me how many people have a lot of distress in their life, and they definitely are willingly, continually living in sin, and then they want to claim that they're some poor victim like Job. I want to check your heart before God. Are you upright? Are you living as he did? You see, this is why we need to understand the very definition of sin. It's at the core of the gospel message. Here's what J.C. Ryle says. That a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. If a man does not realize the dangerous nature of his soul's disease, you cannot wonder if he is content with false or imperfect remedies. If you don't know what's really going on as the cause, you'll never get to the cure. Which is one of the reasons why if we're trying to fight sin, but we're calling it something different than God calls it, you won't have the right remedy. You won't. You'll keep attempting to do things that the world tells you to do, and if you just do it this way, it'll work. It may, temporarily. But the sin that dwells within has to be fought spiritually the way God says. Sin is minimized by so many today, leading to a distortion of the very thing we are saved from. Sin simply is taking whatever God has said and saying, I don't want to do that, and committing the very opposite. If, we, if all we have are mistakes, then the offenses of God, against God are minimized. Essentially, when Christians say that sin is just a mistake, what they're saying is Jesus' death on the cross only covered accidental sin. Just a few mistakes here and there. That's what Jesus came for. What a blasphemous statement to make. By the way, later in the text here in 1 John chapter 3, here's what it says. Verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. Sin is also devilish. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Some will say that a person who is actively sinning cannot be saved when they read that. And I'd venture to say that if we have 1 John 1, 9, then we probably continually sin. Because there's always a need for confession. Of the devil. When a Christian sins, he is doing something that has at its source the devil himself. This is confirmed by, for the devil sinned from the beginning. Beginning is the point of time when Satan introduced sin into the world. When we sin, we are mimicking or quite literally imitating the devil. Did you know that? 
Don't separate sin as something separate from wickedness and evil. Sin is in opposition to God, and as Satan is in opposition to God. By nature, sons of disobedience, people of wrath. When Christ says to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, he is calling out Peter for aligning with Satan. Against the plan of the Father. Although to most listening, it would sound like Peter just cares for his friend. All the I wills of Satan are demonstrated by his followers and even believers who are deceived into thinking they know better what sin is and isn't. You watch today, and most churches will no longer call sin what God calls it in the Bible. Essentially, what they have done is align with Satan and claim they're for God. Anytime we claim sin isn't what sin really is, we're aligning with Satan. We're literally saying, God, I know you've bought me, I know I'm your own, but I want to go back and be a traitor. I'm going to betray you. Don't think Judas is the only one that betrayed Jesus. We do it all the time. Don't think he's the only one that's betrayed Christ. When we redefine what sin is in the word of God, we have literally said, God, I don't agree with you. I'm going to go with what I think is best. It's amazing what many consider to not be sin, which is clearly revealed as sin in God's word. It's clearly revealed that in God's word that they claim to read, which obviously they haven't when they make those statements. Or when, it, when they do read God's word, they pick and choose what they'd like to have be defined as sin. Which is essentially one of the problems with the arguments that are always made. Well, Jesus only had two great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The problem is everybody's jumping to number two without defining number one correctly. If you want to love your neighbor as yourself, you might want to make sure you're loving God the way you ought to. A lot of people want to reach others for Christ without really making sure the relationship with God is right. When we sin, we're essentially siding with Satan in his rebellion against God. Though we may very well be a child of God. When we sin, we essentially turn our back on God and want ourselves to be elevated. You see, before you and I can walk in righteousness as God would want, we need to see sin for what it is. It's the absolute atrocious disease that's eaten all of humanity and caused the greatest havoc on this earth. When you as a disciple walk in righteousness, it is when you are consistent because of you understanding what sin is and what God has called you to. You are consistent with the reason that Christ came. Jesus didn't come for you to have a better life only. 
He came to free sinners. Verse 8, the second part. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. You want to know what Jesus came for? It's to destroy sin and, and the devil because they're connected. They're not separate. Don't ever think of sin as some personal thing to you and Satan somewhere else. It's tied to him. It's tied in opposition to God himself. Which is why it makes it so atrocious when Christians play around with that. When Christians speak on behalf of God and truly are tools of Satan. We'll spend some more time in the coming weeks expounding further on what these works of Satan are as we continue working through the text. The striking part of this passage is what seems to be a contradiction about whether a believer sins or not. In verse 6, we read, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And then in verse 9, it says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. The similar phrase, does not sin, has a few different views that commentators have come to this text with. We're going to be looking at a few of them. The first view is that John is talking about mortal sins. This would be back to St. Augustine and held by some reformers and Roman Catholic commentators. Catholics make a difference between mortal, mortal and venial sins. Moral sins would need the following qualifications. These would be sins that would separate you from God eternally. First of all, here's the first qualification. It has to be a grave matter. The act itself is intrinsically evil and immoral. Murder, rape, incest, perjury, adultery. These are of a grave matter. But that's not the only qualification they'd state. The second one would be that you would have to have full knowledge. You would need to know what you're doing. The person must know what they're doing or planning to do is evil and immoral. It is not something they are unaware of being wrong. They know it is wrong. And the third qualification would be deliberate consent. The person must freely choose to commit the act or plan to do it. Someone forced against their will cannot commit a mortal sin, according to this view. Venial sins would simply be any sins that meet one or two of the conditions needed for a mortal sin, but do not fulfill all three at the same time. Or they're minor violations of the moral law, such, a, such as a white lie that someone would tell, not intended to cause harm, although it can still turn into a moral sin should it be repeated deliberately to cover up a sinful behavior. According to some, baptism places justifying grace on, on the person's soul. A mortal sin kills that justifying grace, placing the person in danger of damnation. Some Protestants argue that a Christian cannot commit mortal sins. This is unrealistic since all of us commit sins that we are fully aware of. I don't know if you've ever committed one since you've been saved, one that you are aware of fully committing. I know I have. There's no indication in 1 John 
This John is differentiating between types of sin, so I don't think that that's the argument that's being raised here. Another view says that John is speaking of an ideal situation, an ideal not experienced by his readers, meaning God wants you to be like this. That would be the ideal, to not sin, that he's speaking theoretically. It seems to be that John is speaking more factually than just ideally here. He's making a statement. Those that are born of God do not sin. Another view is that John is speaking of willful sin. This would be the worldview that the view that would be held by people like Calvin, that a true Christian cannot willfully sin. This means that a true Christian does not mean to sin. This view merges into the most common take that John is speaking of habitual sin here meaning that those that are born of God don't habitually sin. True Christian will not practice sin as a lifestyle. And if he does, he's not a Christian. That would be that view. I think the argument that best fits with the text is that when we're abiding in him, there is a sinless experience because we are attached to the vine. Not that a Christian is completely free from sin. Else 1 John 1, 9, I think, is kind of null and void then. It's a worthless promise, if you will. There is a connection between 5 and 6. It says, in him is no sin. That is, in Christ, there's no sin. And because we abide in Christ, we do not sin. So when we're abiding in Christ, we can have that. The abiding one does not sin because he is abiding in Christ. If we are in fellowship with the sinless one, then by necessity we must be living sinlessly at that point. Does not mean that Christians don't sin. When they are abiding in the vine, they are not in sin. But how often does that remain consistent for us? In verse 9... Whoever could be that, which, or whatever, referring to the regenerate nature, the part of the child of God does not, that does not sin. If you turn to 2 Peter two, uh, 1, verses 2 through 4, you read these words, that we're partakers of the divine nature. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We are partakers of the divine nature. We don't become God, we partake with him. Galatians 2.20, Christ lives in me. Paul makes the statement, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice his next phrase. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
When we choose to sin, it is the fallen part of us that is sinning. That is why you need to put on the new man. The present tense is used back in 1 John. And the arguments made, and this is the tension that really many in the faith have, if we're arguing that a Christian cannot habitually sin and be saved, I think that would disqualify most of us if we're being practical. If we're being honest. What habitual lifestyle are we going to put in that category that would say this person's no longer saved because they're living in this sin? You see, there are Greek words that mean continually, which John, back in 1 John 3, could have used if you wanted to stress a habitual action. In Hebrews 9, 6, it says this, Now when these things had thus been prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. That's something they continually did. Paul also had a habit that he continually strived for in Acts 24, 16. Says this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And this is a point of contention because it really is a serious matter how we define sin and how we view sin in our lives and the lives of those around us. As one commentator puts it, do not all Christians continue to sin until the day of his death? Do not all Christians sin daily? Is not daily a, a sin a continuation in doing it? How can anyone claim not to be continually in sin? The difficulty with this one is, if not sinning habitually is stressed here in the text, how would one know if they're saved or not based on their own struggle with sin? I mean, if we were to be honest, right, we've all struggled with sin, those of us that are saved. We have. You may be currently struggling quite a bit with sin right now. Is that a determining mark that you're not a child of God because you're struggling with sin? I mean, after all, the text of Scripture says, right, a righteous man falls seven times. It's not that he didn't fall. This is the tension of the perseverance of the saints in arguing that one cannot continue in a pattern of sin while at the same time having a difficult time arguing where that line has been crossed into blatant unbelief. A lot of these things become subjective. I don't think that person's saved based on what they're living. That's not for us to decide. If we're to be honest, some of us are just better at hiding sin. That's the truth. Some are a little more open about it. They post it on Facebook. The assurance of salvation, believer, is the obedience to the commandments of Scripture. That will provide assurance to all of us. You want to be assured of being saved? Take God's word seriously. Don't take your assurance based on your performance with somebody else. I'm living a better life than they are, so I must be saved. That's not where you get assurance from. In fact, I would say that's one of the worst places to find assurance. Because your standard now is other human beings rather than the word of God. Perseverance of faith always matters. 
even when it sometimes seems that there isn't much, much evidence for it. For example, the thief on the cross, he didn't have much time to show that he lived a fruitful life for God, did he? What about deathbed conversions? Did he get a chance to really work that one out? Conformity to Christ is the big indicator whether or not we love and strive for the things of God and are his own. Believer, you and I need to urgently think of sin in our lives as a true break in fellowship with God. And the moments that we feel that we are not a child of God because sin has destroyed and wreaked havoc in our lives, we need to go back to the cross, confess our sin, and know that God has promised that he will forgive. Even if you don't feel like that. One of the dangers today in what people consider revival across this nation is that it's based on emotionalism. It's based on, I've got my feelings worked up to a certain point, and I feel that that's God. Be careful. That is not an accurate assessment every time. How do we know that? Because people can cry crocodile tears when someone confronts them on something, and they're frauds. And we can tell God, forgive me, when we really have no heart behind that confession. We really don't care to change something in our lives. We just don't want to deal with the consequences, so we ask for forgiveness. We as a church need to be broken over sin in our own lives, rather than trying to find and point out all the sin in everybody else's. There needs to be a hunger for the things of God to such a point that we, before we ever point the finger at anyone else, we realize the sinner we are. We realize how we are before God. We realize, just as Paul, that the things that we want to do, we don't. And the things that we don't want to do, we do. And that battle's real. And it's raging. It's a lot more difficult to see sometimes because we're so busy looking at everyone else's lives and where they don't match up and we forget to think about us. The difficulty, I think, in this text as we work through it is that when John is trying to communicate to the readers, to the precious children of God, that they need to take this seriously in their life, He's trying to tell them that God has given you all the tools. If you're in Christ, if you're abiding in him, you won't sin. Because you already have all that God needed. He gave you all of that in Christ. You weren't the difference maker. He was. You go back to him. You don't try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, I'm just going to perform a little better, God. I'm just going to do a little better tomorrow. I know I blew it yesterday. Tomorrow's a new day. I'm just going to do a little better. That's not what God's looking for. Cut that performance out. You will always fail in your own strength. Always. What's even worse is don't rely on other people to do what only God can. Don't put people on a pedestal. They'll fail you every time. 
You ask yourself this question. Some of the people that you've been closest to in your life, have they been an encouragement? Yes. Have they also failed you? Yes. Can you expect both? Yes. The only one that will never fail you is God himself. God is the only one that doesn't fail. Anytime we put a priority in our lives of saying, God, we don't really care what you think about this, we're going to do this instead, is the moment that we need to realize that everything that God is going to do as far as chastening us is to bring us back into realization of what sin really is. You want to know Christians, the most miserable people on this earth? It's not the world. The most miserable people on this earth are believers who know better that live in sin. Those are the most miserable people on this earth. Because they've got the Holy Spirit and God the Father working in their lives going, listen, you're wrong. This chastening is going to be much worse if you keep going down this path. And it comes to a point where there's a termination sometimes. You're done. You fooled around too long with sin. It burned you. The goal for the believer is never how much I can keep getting away with as God deals with his own severely. Believer, don't worry about how God's going to take care of the world. Take, worry about how God's going to take care of you if you're out of line. And not in a dreadful, oh no, God's going to get me, but rather, I want to live holy because God has called me to this. Because Jesus laid his life down for me. Why would I not want to live for him? Why would I not want to fight sin? There must be a changed life. The genuineness of conversion is entirely the Spirit's working in a person. We can't rebirth ourselves. Believer, when you and I look at others that we don't know whether or not they are a child of God, we ought to pray that the Holy Spirit works in their life. Because they can't rebirth themselves. That is entirely a work of the Spirit. Just because someone feels like they're in the presence of God does not mean that they're a child of God. And what we ought to be careful of is how we are walking with God. What does God see in our lives? What does God see in the way that we live? Spurgeon made this statement. He says, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. There ought to be a change. The question is this. What is it that makes a believer, a child of God, different than the world? Is it merely that they are now on a different status? That Jesus has rescued them, so now they are in the kingdom and nothing else has to be different? Or was there a rebirth to righteousness when all that person knew was sin? Was there a calling from darkness to light? I mean, a lot, of, a lot of Christians kind of have all sorts of weird ideas as to what it means to be different than the world. Right? I like the King James language. We're a peculiar people, right? 
Well, you can be really weird peculiar, that's for sure. It's not what Scripture's talking about. Should we all have Grace Academy shirts on or something like that? No. That's not what makes us ultimately different. What makes us different is, from the inside out, God working those things out. The sin that we struggle with. The tensions that we have. The broken relationships that we have. The constant depression and anxiety that we have. God's working behind the scenes. God's working through us to others. You see, the gospel didn't just affect you and me so we could keep it to ourselves. The gospel came to us so it's because it's heading to someone else. It's not meant for you and I to keep it to ourselves. And unfortunately, so many of us, we're so caught up in ourselves that we forget what God's called us to. You and I ought to be concerned with sin in our lives, but also concerned with the fact that not sharing the gospel is in and of itself a breaking of God's commandment. That itself is a sin. And that is a sin that many of us commit more regularly than we'd like to admit. God gives us opportunities to share his word with others. We don't take that opportunity. There are people that we've built such good relationships with, they don't know that we care that they have Jesus. They don't know. It is not enough to go, I'm just going to live a little differently so that they would ask the question. Sometimes you ought to come and approach them. You ask. You declare the gospel. You see, the truth is, all of us, all of us as saints are going to have the struggle with sin. But in verse 9, he's clearly telling us, Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Why? For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. This is in reference to the regenerate part of the child of God. The divine nature planted at regeneration. The principle of spiritual life. When we abide, we remain consistent as we abide in the vine. You see, the truth is, believers, we have a lot of things that will distract us, that will constantly distract us from seeing sin the way we ought to see it. And until we see sin the way God sees sin, we will continually either give excuses for it or blow it out of proportion to where we think we can do nothing for God, doesn't matter. Paul, realizing that he's a wretched man, did not stop him from ministering to others with the gospel. Some of us, we use that as the excuse for why we can't reach others for Jesus. Well, you don't know how messed up I am. I've got all these sins that I'm still dealing with. I'm trying to do this right. I keep messing it up. Uh, Paul understands. Paul's in the same boat that you're in. He realized that he's the chief of sinners. That didn't stop him from sharing the gospel. And it shouldn't stop you and me. God is not waiting for you to be perfect in every area for you to share the gospel. What he's asking you is to see sin for what it is. And in seeing it for what it is, to deal with your own sin properly. Don't let the fear 
of man dissuade you from what God wants? So in conclusion, this is the biggest point I want to take away from the text this morning. How do you view sin? How do you view sin? Do you view sin as just a part of being human? Everybody does it. Oops, we all make mistakes, right? Who cares? I mean, we all sin. It doesn't matter. I mean, Pastor, why do we even have to talk about this? Like, why are we talking about sin so often? That's what the text of Scripture is talking about. We didn't come this morning to hear something from me. We're hearing what John is expounding on. And that it's important to understand what sin is in your life. Do you minimize sin as simply a mistake, even though God sees it as a greater offense? This is an area I think we can be so desensitized the longer we've been Christians. We have those sins that we kind of really feel are a real offense to God, and then those that we don't think are that offensive. We need to start seeing sin as sin clearly without playing that game in our minds. Well, it wasn't so bad. I didn't really lie like that person did. It wasn't that bad. I didn't, I didn't really mean it like that. God understands. Like, I think it goes so practical that if we read the Bible and we're honest about it, then parents should parent a certain way apart from the world. Christian parents should parent a certain way apart from the world. Christian marriages should be a, sh- a certain way apart from the world. If we understood that the gospel is truly a picture that God paints for us of what our marriage should be like, we'd understand what marriage should be like a little more. Unfortunately, a lot of us, we read a lot of self-help books that are helpful in some areas, but we miss the biblical analogies, the biblical pictures that God's painting for us. We're saying, God, what you gave me is not enough. I've got to find something else. And yes, of course, other things are helpful, and I'm not knocking books. I read books myself. But I think what happens is we sometimes replace God's word for a good Christian book. And then we wonder why our view of sin isn't the same as God would want. Without even realizing it, I don't know if you understand this, but some Christians, the reason why they don't view sin the same way that God views sin is because a certain Christian author has dissuaded them. A certain Christian author has pulled them in a different direction on that. Oh, have you read this awesome book by this author? He made some great points on this part. You need to be able to be discerning enough to read and say, that's good, that's horrible. That doesn't align with scripture. Is your desire to seek a righteous life before God? Or are you okay with old sinful patterns? Here's what I think the church really, if we grasp this, it would change all of us as a church. If we grasp the fact that if we made things right with God, we had a clean conscience before God, we could honestly go to bed with a clean conscience, that we've made things right with God and others. That would absolutely revolutionize our church. And the only way that happens is if we make the God, words, God's word a priority, if we made prayer a priority to confess sin. Not just thank God for the bread. Not just thank God for the good stuff, or pray that God would heal so-and-so, but to truly go, God, forgive me. Forgive me for what I've done here. 
cleanse me, purify me. God did not send Jesus to simply improve your life, but to free you from the sin that you and I desire more than him at times. As Paul himself put it, put sin to death. You are not to entertain sin, you're to kill it. You are literally to take an, a sword, which is the word of God, to the sin in your life. I want you to picture the scene from Gladiator and him finishing that guy off. That's what you should be doing with sin in your life. We don't do that. We let it linger. You ever seen one of those scenes in a movie when someone should be finished off and they're not? And they let them just lay there. And the results are disastrous. That's essentially what happens when we play around with sin. We don't have what it takes to kill it in our life. We think it's not a big deal to keep it alive. To actually kill sin. God's not calling us to go to war against other people. He's calling us to go to war on sin in our own lives. you're lacking assurance of salvation, it can very well be because you have not been living faithfully as God would want you to, as clearly revealed in his word. You're going to have those moments of doubt, and I don't know if I'm really a child of God because I'm not living faithfully what God would want. Keeping his commandments gives every believer assurance. And keeping them with the heart that truly longs to obey. That doesn't have the worldview of, man, God's, God told me I have to do this. What kind of relationship with God would that be? Is if everything that we had before him was just a demand. Do you understand the kind of love God had for you that he gave Jesus for you? Do you understand that? It cost him. He was gracious to you and me. Disobedience many times in our Christian life will always lead to doubt. You can't bank on the promises of God without doing your portion that he asks. You know that? So many Christians will quote verses like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. They don't quote any of the stuff around that text. And what God requires of us. You and I cannot live sinless, but we can strive for holiness. Being apart from sin is when we're abiding in him. Our desire for God and his word, his people and prayer will only further bring us into conformity to Christ. There's an area I really wish as a pastor I could communicate and I don't know that I've ever been able to do it efficiently or openly. But it's to get the people of God to understand that there is to be a love for one another 
and a desire to do the things of God together. To strive for the things of God. And that means that when we have sin in our lives, we deal with sin in our lives. We don't look at each other with the judgmental attitude that, hey, I'm doing better in this area than you are. How dare you? But to truly have a heart that goes, let's bring up one another. Let's stir one another to good works. Let's restore those that are weak. Let's come along somebody that's struggling and go, hey, listen, here, brother, sister, here's, here's what would help. And the person that's being helped in that area did not take offense to that. To not feel like, man, they're out to get me because they're trying to help me. We're so easily upset. We're so easily hurt by the fact that God is using other people in our lives sometimes. I mean, that goes right up to the pastor. I mean, people confront me as well. How do I take it? Do I repent in the areas God wants me to repent? Maybe if we simply started with ourselves and what God would want, he would change the people around us. You ever had one of those moments when you felt like you had a tension between you and someone else, and then you realized, it's not them. It's me. It's definitely me. God, forgive me. Do you know how many things would be resolved so much faster if people had that attitude? People started with themselves instead of going, but you don't know. That person did this and this and this, and you're right. They did. Well, what have you done? How many amazing things would be done in the church if people understood the depth of the love of God for them and forgiving all the sins that he has? And we're offended over one or two things that someone else has done against us. Some of them could be very grievous. But none of which compares to what Jesus has gone through for us. Laying down his life, being rejected of his friends... We're to be a testimony of salvation from sin. And we are doing a huge disservice to him if we sin by doing what we would want rather than striving for holiness as he's called. If you do know Christ, then coming to him in faith is where it needs to start and keep happening. You don't just begin your walk with God with that. You continue your walk with God with that. You need Jesus as much today as you needed him yesterday as you did the first day that you came to saving faith. In fact, what scripture calls for us as believers is to meet more regularly as we see the day approaching. To become so oriented That God wants us to fellowship. God wants us to be around the saints. God wants for these things to be a part of our lives. And where they're not, other things will fall. Spiritual disciplines will fall. You show me a person that's faithfully doing what God asks in fellowship with other saints, and I'll show you somebody that probably is living more consistently than the one that's outside that church fellowship. So in closing again, how do you view sin? Do you see it the way that God does? Or do you have your own definition?